Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's actions, Listener discretion is advised. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's a long, winding drive from Arizona to Los Angeles. Along the way, we'll pass deserts and the occasional roadside casino. Eventually, the barren desert will give way to the bustling suburbs of L.A. From there, it's a short jog to the Pacific Ocean where all road trips are forced to end. Once they've had their fill, most tourists will turn around and head back home, but not everyone. Los Angeles can be seductive. It has a way of convincing you anything is possible. Perhaps no one knows that feeling better than a musician who later went by the name Sunflower. He spent most of the 1960s on the road, working with everybody from The Doors to Led Zeppelin. After five years of living out of a suitcase, though, he was fried. So, like a lot of 20-somethings, he came to Los Angeles feeling lost and looking for a change. And on New Year's Eve, while on his way to a party, a friend asked to stop by a restaurant called The Source and pick up the owner, Jim Baker. When Sunflower pulled up, he saw Jim meditating. The man was massive at six foot four, with an unruly gray beard that made him look like Santa Claus. Sunflower put a hand on Jim's shoulder to say hello. The instant they touched, it felt like electricity shot up Sunflower's spine. The rest of the world melted away. Sunflower's kundalini, his life force, had awakened. A new path unfolded before him, leading straight to Jim Baker. Or as he was called by his followers, Father Yod. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This summer, Cults hit the road. We traveled from coast to coast to investigate the people and places that host the most notorious religious groups in the United States. So put on your shades, roll down the window, and kick up your feet as the rubber hits the road. This is the last stop on our cross-country journey. But this story is a trip in and of itself. We're officially ending our tour with the Source family in Los Angeles. What started off as a health food restaurant grew into the hippest cult in Hollywood. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Ready to find your next favorite podcast? 
Spotify makes it easier than ever to discover new favorites by previewing short audio clips before committing to a full listen. You can even watch some podcasts with video or just keep playing audio in the background. It's everything you want in one app. Music, podcasts, and audiobooks across any device. Play anytime, anywhere, any way you'd like with Spotify. Try today. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On January 30th, 1943, on the open ocean off of Rennell Island, the USS Chicago was attacked by Japanese torpedoes. As the lower decks of the Chicago took on water, the upper decks began burning. Those who weren't killed in the blast jumped into the ocean, many of them dying on impact. But one brave soldier, Jim Baker, sprung to action. He rescued as many wounded soldiers as he could manage, pulling them onto life rafts and anything else that would float. At just 20 years old, Jim Baker became a hero. At least, that's the story he later told. Not much is actually known about Jim Baker's early life. He was from Cincinnati, Ohio. According to family friend Dr. Patricia Bragg, his dad left when he was a baby, around 1922 or 23. He was raised alone by his mother, Cora. When he was a boy, Jim became acquainted with Paul Bragg, who founded Bragg Health Food in 1912. You've probably heard of their amino acid soy sauce or apple cider vinegar. Paul became like a father figure to Jim. He introduced the young boy to the benefits of a vegetarian diet and martial arts. Under Paul's tutelage, Jim became a bodybuilder and judo champion. At age 12, he later claimed he was named America's Strongest Boy, though it's unclear who gave him that title. In 1943, two years after the U.S. entered World War II, Jim joined the Marines. According to him, he spent the war shooting airplanes out of the sky and sniping enemy soldiers. He said he had 13 confirmed kills and claimed to have won the Silver Star Medal for heroism in battle. After the war, Jim moved out to Los Angeles. It's rumored that when he did so, he left a wife and child behind in Ohio, though he never publicly acknowledged it. Even in the 50s, L.A. was a place of extremes. The disrepair of Skid Row lay just a few miles from the unimaginable wealth of West Hollywood, Santa Monica, and Malibu. Back then, the city was still chock full of aspiring actors and models. To make it in Tinseltown, you had to be persistent, even cutthroat. It wasn't enough to hang with the in-crowd. They had to want to hang with you. 
And that was an area where Jim excelled. He was physically fit, dashing, and had undeniable charisma. He was also very confident, which could lead him to reckless behavior. For instance, there are not one, but two stories of him judo-chopping people to death. In 1955, Jim said he was walking down the street when a man attacked him with a knife. Jim disarmed him by delivering a few crushing chops to his torso, killing him. Because it was in self-defense, he never did jail time. Instead, he continued his life in L.A. and got married again, this time to a woman named Elaine. The couple opened the Aware Inn, one of the nation's first natural food restaurants. In a city where looks were everything, business boomed. With the help of investors, Jim opened two more popular restaurants in the early 60s, the Discovery Inn in Topanga and the Old World, which became a chain. According to some of his former employees, the restaurant ventures made Jim a millionaire several times over, but his personal life wasn't nearly as prosperous. Jim was a terrible husband. He lied to Elaine and cheated on her indiscriminately. The details of their divorce are unknown, but she was out of the picture by 1963. That same year, Jim started dating an unnamed famous actress, who happened to already be married. When her husband discovered the affair, he attacked Jim with a gun. But before he could fire, Jim judo-chopped him twice and shot the husband in the head, killing him. The story made local headlines. This time, Jim went to jail for manslaughter, though it's unclear for how long. He was out by the mid-60s and went right back to work at his restaurants. Given that he was now single, he spent his free time partying and dropping acid with a 19-year-old girl. The wild L.A. party scene cost lots of money. So even though Jim was supposedly a millionaire, he started struggling financially. His former general manager, Bobby Klein, said Jim came into the Aware Inn at night and cleaned out the cash registers. It got so bad that the staff didn't have money to make change when customers paid their bill. Eventually, the restaurant's investors stepped in. This time, Jim got judo-chopped, right out of the business. Surprisingly, the hit served as a wake-up call. Jim, now in his mid-40s, realized he'd made some mistakes. He got curious about the ways he could better himself and make an impact on the city. By 1967, Los Angeles was an epicenter of social and political movements. Wannabe flower children migrated west to join the hippie commune springing up all over California. And while Jim Baker was a good 20 years older than most of the counterculture, he fully embraced the pro-love, anti-war sentiment. He wanted to open a new restaurant that catered to these free spirits, a communal place where philosophical ideas were shared over great food. Jim was serious about adopting a more altruistic lifestyle. But first, he needed funding to get the restaurant off the ground. To do that, he did something that wasn't very peace and love. Jim resorted to bank robbing. He never said how many banks he hit, but it was anywhere between 2 and 11 by one former employee's estimation. A few months later, in 1969, he opened the Source restaurant on Sunset Boulevard, just down the road from the Aware Inn. It was an old ranch-style home with red shingles and a big patio outside. Tables were set up in the old living room, which featured a big brick fireplace to keep the place warm in the winter. The source was completely vegetarian, a rarity in those days. And like Jim's other ventures, it was a booming success. 
According to one former employee, trade magazines wrote that it made more money per square foot than any other restaurant in the country. It quickly became a place to see and be seen. It wasn't unusual for Goldie Hawn or Joni Mitchell to be seated at a table. When John Lennon was in town, he popped by two nights in a row. Owning the It restaurant in Hollywood would inflate anyone's ego, but Chim's started to rival a hot air balloon. In 1970, he evolved from a simple beloved restaurant owner to a father figure. To fully understand Jim Baker's rise to prominence, we have to understand the context. A lot of Jim's customers were young and impressionable. They felt cheated by the system and misunderstood by their parents. So beginning in 1970, he started offering spiritual guidance. Every Sunday morning, he led meditation sessions at the restaurant. He gave sermons pulling from various Eastern religions and philosophies. Along the way, he sprinkled in his own life advice. Week after week, the dining room and courtyard were jam-packed with young people searching for a spiritual depth. Jim spoke to the crowd about the benefits of an organic vegetarian diet. He claimed to prioritize three things in life, mental clarity, pleasure, and the act of living. In time, Jim started hiring his most ardent followers to work at the restaurant. They were happy to chop salads for minimum wage, just to be closer to him. That's how Jim met Sunflower, a musician who dropped everything to wait tables. Another of his early supporters was named Heaven, a 12-year-old girl who used to sneak out after school to come work in the dining room. But the most important person Jim met was Robin, a 19-year-old who became his wife. When they met, Robin claimed that Jim opened up her world, bringing light, love, protection, and consciousness. She said, I never knew that anybody could possibly love a person like that. The couple were married in 1970, just before the Source restaurant started meeting as a community. Robin was spiritual and soulful. She became a mother figure for Jim's growing group of followers who started calling her Aom. The phrase is taken from a Buddhist chant and roughly means essence of the body and voice. Jim and Robin's relationship revolved around spirituality and the path to enlightenment. To take that further, they went to meet Yogi Bhajan, a kundalini yoga guru in Los Angeles. Bhajan was internationally known for his spiritual teachings, and Jim was among his biggest fans. After that meeting, a framed portrait of Yogi Bhajan went up over the fireplace at the Source restaurant. One afternoon, Jim's friend, Anne-Marie Benstrom, saw the picture and started chuckling. She asked Jim when he was going to put up a picture of himself. He just laughed and said he'd never do anything like that. But Anne says it only took six months for Jim to replace the photo of Bajan with a picture of himself. And soon, his entire philosophy shifted, with him smack dab in the center. Coming up, Jim Baker sets out to gather disciples. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. 
shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And on behalf of everyone here at Parcast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Now back to the story. As time went on, the Source restaurant continued growing, as did the meditation group that Jim Baker hosted every Sunday. Eventually, Jim believed that he had become so spiritually evolved that he was essentially a prophet. His calling was to be a mouthpiece for God and to become a spiritual father on earth. Instead of following the teachings of others like Yogi Bhajan, he was ready to take the lead. And so he traveled. According to his wife Robin, the two of them sat before the great spiritual gurus of the time, including Alan Watts and Manly P. Hall. Jim took what he believed were the best parts of each school of thought and used them as the basis for his own beliefs. Wanting to emulate the gurus he'd studied, Jim started holding court in the attic of the Source restaurant, and he played his part perfectly. Magus, a young man who came to California to find his path, described seeing the attic for the first time. One day, as he finished his lunch on the patio of the restaurant, his server suggested he go see Jim, or as they'd started calling him, Father Yod. Yod is a letter in the Hebrew language, usually meaning hand. So Jim's new name, Father Yod, roughly translated to the hand of the Father, or God. Upstairs, Magus found a long, narrow room. It was covered in lush damask tapestries and decorated with statues of Eastern deities. Incense and candle smoke made the air thick. At the end of the makeshift temple sat Father Yod. Magus felt pulled to him. He knelt at Jim Baker's feet and kissed them. From that second, he knew he'd found the place he belonged. A lot of Jim's early followers described similar spiritual experiences. And in those days, his lessons were easy to support. Jim told his followers to prioritize kindness. He referenced other spiritual teachers, being transparent about the fact that not all of these ideas were his own. And he was transparent about his problematic criminal past. He admitted that for him, it was impossible to love absolutely everyone. But at the very least, he could be kind. His honesty won his followers' trust. Unlike other religious institutions where saintliness and virtue were put on a pedestal, this spiritual teacher was profoundly human. In 1972, as his group's numbers swelled over 100, Jim decided it was time to move somewhere larger. He told the young people, who saw him as a father figure, that they weren't going to waste money on rent anymore. Instead, he was going to provide them with a place to live, food to eat, and clothes to wear. 
He stopped paying the family for their work at the restaurant and started footing the bill for their living expenses instead. He used money from the source to rent a Georgian-style mansion in Los Feliz. The communal living space felt like an adult summer camp. Anyone might show up and stay for a few hours or a few months. Over the course of 1972, a couple hundred people probably came and went. That was part of the appeal. Nobody really knew much about one another's backgrounds. You could just show up and blend in. Not long afterward, Jim started referring to them as the Source family. And while they loved life at the mansion, their neighbors weren't as thrilled. For one thing, every night was a party. The family was often up at 3 a.m. dancing or meditating. The men grew out their hair and beards. The whole family walked around naked half the time, which attracted peeping toms and offended more than a few local parents. And they played music. A lot. According to Sunflower, the house came with a big piano in the front room. The family was full of musicians who'd burnt out trying to build a career in the industry. When someone sat down to play at the piano, other musicians in the house might jam a little. Before long, the Source family had their own rock band. The Source family band was never that well known on the music scene, but Jim's eccentric look did help attract a cult following. That's how he met the woman he renamed Isis, who became the Source family historian. Before Isis met Jim, she was engaged to a celebrity photographer named Rob Raffaelli. For one of his shoots, Rob needed several men with long hair and beards who could play Jesus. Isis knew exactly where to look for them. She stopped by the Source restaurant and asked for Jim Baker. When Isis first saw him, she was overcome by a sense of peace. Jim embraced her and said, Welcome home. Soon after, Isis broke off her engagement and signed over her bank account to Jim Baker. She worked at the Source restaurant in exchange for room and board. People were naturally drawn to Jim, and he was good at getting them to surrender their financial and mental freedom. Isis's ex-fiancé described Jim's followers as a bunch of little automatons, with someone else pulling the strings. In just three days, a follower who was renamed Orbit liquidated his massive Victorian-era condo, full of priceless antiques, state-of-the-art stereo equipment, and several cars. He gave every cent to Jim. The next morning, he was at the restaurant washing dishes. The source had transitioned from a metaphorical family to a literal one. The entire cult went to social services together to get their names changed. Legally, they were now Sunflower the Aquarian, or Jin the Aquarian, whatever oddball name Jim gave them. All the strange behavior eventually attracted police attention. You have to remember, the Source family came to prominence shortly after the Manson family murders in 1969. Law enforcement feared a copycat tragedy. So when a hundred white-robe-wearing hippies showed up to legally name themselves after a constellation, the cops were on edge. 16-year-old Heaven was another red flag for the LAPD. She wasn't legally old enough to live in the commune without parental consent. The first few times, the authorities issued warnings about underage members living at the property. Once they got tired of rustling heaven into cop cars, the warnings got more serious. As always, Jim had a plan. One morning, he announced that all underage women living on the commune had to marry an adult member of the source. At 16, Heaven married the 28-year-old musician, Sunflower. Jim Baker, or Father Yode, performed the ceremony himself. If anyone had an issue with the union, they didn't voice it. From the look of things, people embraced it. 
And when we say the look of things, we mean it literally. Much of what happened at the mansion was recorded on film thanks to Isis Aquarian, the Source family historian. Because of her, we have a pretty good idea of how members of the Source family spent their time. First thing in the morning, they jumped into their unheated, ice-cold pool. This was part of what Jim called their spiritual boot camp, which also included fingertip push-ups in the yard. Then it was time for breakfast. The family only ate raw food, consumed within 15 minutes of cutting it from their garden. According to Jim, food lost its life force if not consumed within that time frame. With breakfast, each took a long puff of the sacred herb, more commonly known as marijuana. While toking, Jim repeated mantras like, You are nothing but a channel, an instrument for the divine purpose of God. Then all hundred or so members gathered in the meditation room for breathing exercises. They were meant to help achieve balance, but realistically just made them woozy and disoriented. One former member said that after a hit of marijuana and the breathing exercises, he felt like he was on LSD. Meditation classes were also a staple of daily life. The sessions could span hours. Members wrapped themselves in white sheets and let Jim guide them through long and winding narrations. Jim perpetuated the idea that the Source family could usher in a new age of Aquarius, a time of spiritual rebirth and artistic passion. The Source family would become role models in the new era, and children born within the family would be the saints and sages. To this end, members of the Source were tasked with procreating to make the family as large as possible. The first of these children was conceived by Heaven and Sunflower. On April 7, 1972, Heaven went into labor, but something was wrong. Jim Baker acted as midwife. As the head started to crown, he realized that the umbilical cord was wrapped around the baby's neck. The child was not breathing. The room fell silent as Jim pulled the baby out of the birth canal. As Heaven and Sunflower wept, Jim held the baby close and said, My God, if you let this child live, I will never speak anything but the word of God so long as I live. Then he blew breath into the baby's mouth. Within seconds, the baby started crying, and the room erupted with cheers. Jim named him Solomon, which, according to Sunflower, means God of the Sun. He grew to be a perfectly healthy little boy. Sunflower still calls Solomon's birth a miracle, though modern medicine might disagree. In reality, this kind of birth is common and relatively harmless. But Jim's followers didn't know that. To them, it was proof that he, Father Yod, was a prophet. Maybe even God. Coming up, Jim Baker prepares his followers for the end of the world. Now back to the story. In 1972, after giving CPR to a newborn baby, 49-year-old Jim Baker's spiritual teachings became darker. He immersed himself in the history of the Templars and Druids. He adopted ancient Native American and Egyptian religions, and he started encouraging even odder practices. He and his followers started dressing in tandem with the religions they were appropriating, indigenous Americans, Druids, and eventually in long flowing robes and dresses. He had his followers stare directly into the sun until their eyes were nearly fried. 
Or they'd watch the moon until it was blurry, then close their eyes and stare at the moon, quote, inside of us. The family started practicing ceremonial magic and soon claimed to have carved a hole in the astral world. According to them, this accidentally let creatures from another dimension into the mansion. After that, some members of the source started seeing vampires on the oak staircases around the house. In short, things were getting weird. And as the magical practices ramped up, Magus Aquarian started to realize that this was no longer a group of spiritualists led by a prophet. It had become a house full of codependent eccentrics who thought they saw vampires. One member said things moved so quickly that it felt like the family was careening down the first big hill of a roller coaster, but the pace also made members burn out. For Magus, the breaking point came when Jim Baker started taking younger wives. He courted to marry 13 women, some as young as 17. One of these was Heaven, the 16-year-old mother and wife of Sunflower. Shortly after the birth of their child, Sunflower left Heaven for her best friend, named Aquariana. Jim Baker was quick to scoop her up. Heaven admitted that she felt bad for Jim's other wife, Robin, because Jim's polyamory was clearly destroying her. But it felt impossible to say no to him. One of Jim's new wives was Makushla, a dark-haired woman in her 20s who'd previously been a good friend to Robin. Makushla says that even though Jim was literally twice her age, he saw her as his mother, a role she was honored to take on. She would do anything to be near him. Jim justified his polyamory by assigning each of these new wives a different role in the family, as though together they did the work of a single matriarch the Source family needed. And while most of the family went along with this explanation, they couldn't help but feel sorry for Robin. She was devastated. She was still madly in love with the man she married. It broke her to watch Jim romance these women. She later said, Jim treated me like I was the queen of heaven and earth. Then, in one afternoon, just stripped that away from me. He might as well have skinned me alive. The entire family watched her suffer this heartbreak in public. Magus couldn't watch Jim take advantage of these women, so he left. And he wasn't the only one who thought it was time for the Source family to fold. The family's rented mansion was just a few blocks down from the LaBianca house. There, Charles Manson's followers killed Leno and Rosemary LaBianca on August 10, 1969. The neighbors were growing more concerned about what they were seeing at the Source family mansion. They put enormous pressure on the landlord, who finally agreed not to renew Jim's lease. In March 1973, the Source family moved to a three-bedroom house in the Hollywood Hills. Jim bought enough wood for the family to build bunks all over the new house. They somehow managed to cram in over 150 beds with privacy walls, like the cubby holes you might rent at a hostel. A lack of space meant Jim's followers had to give up even more of their belongings. Yet, even in those tight spaces, Jim saw opportunity. He had his followers build a recording studio in the two-car garage. He gave one of his supporters, Octavius, $30,000 and told him to take the rest of the band to a music center. There, they were told to buy whatever they needed to soundproof the studio and fill it with top-of-the-line equipment. Because of the artists in the Source family, the band was actually great, until Jim took the mic. He'd have the bandmates start playing something that felt familiar, then let the spirit move him. That usually meant he came in yelling and screaming whatever lyrics came to mind without any sense of rhythm. The band recorded over 65 albums together, all fully improvised. 
That much is evident when you listen. Some of their music is currently on Spotify. Despite how prolific they were, every record label in town turned them down. So Jim settled for the next best thing. He started booking gigs at local high schools. After shows, he'd stick around to answer questions about the Source family and invite the students to morning meditations. While most of the teenagers saw him as a roadside attraction, several high schoolers did start showing up, teenage girls especially. A big selling point was the idea that within the Source, women could be with whoever they wanted. They could even have multiple partners if that's what they chose. But in reality, only Jim could decide who paired up with whom. There were a few occasions where he forced a couple to break up so he could assign the woman to another man in the house. He never explained the pairings. And as he grew more controlling of his members, the spark that initially drew them in fizzled out. Even Jim's first wife, Robin, mustered the courage to leave. Then she realized she was pregnant. Remember, Robin was financially dependent on Jim, just like the rest of the family. Jim didn't just control their minds and bodies, he took away their self-sufficiency. They relied on him for everything, even toiletries and food. Robin might have been ready to strike out on her own, but now she had a baby on the way. So she stayed and hoped that once the baby was born, Jim might snap back to reality. Instead, he assumed a new name, Yahweh, a version of the Hebrew word for God. His followers believed he was divine and that he knew Armageddon was nigh. It's hard to say what Jim really believed and what he said for his followers' benefit. Maybe he sensed his family was growing restless. Or maybe he genuinely became a doomsday prepper, only intensifying the behavior that drove away followers in the first place. Either way, he said the world would end by 1975 or 1976, after a nuclear arms race led to an all-out war. To give his people the best possible chance of survival, Jim packed up the Source restaurant, ending his journey in Los Angeles. In January 1975, he and the family waved goodbye to the vibrant counterculture they built in California. Jim used the money from the restaurant to move the entire family to the lush Hawaiian island of Kauai. Except nobody wanted them there. The Source family was not the first religious group to move to Kauai. A couple of prominent movements found a home on the island in the 60s, but they only lasted a few years. By 1974, Kauai was packed with hippies. When the Source family leased a parcel of land and announced plans to build a health spa, the locals rebelled. Police started tailing members of the Source every time they drove off the property in an attempt to intimidate them. Nobody hired anyone from the Source either, which meant Jim had to foot the bill for the entire family. That wasn't a problem in LA since they all worked at his restaurant, but in Kauai, they weren't generating income. They were just draining his resources. Not long after they arrived, a local newspaper printed an expose on the family, calling them Manson types. Father Yode called the newspaper and denied this claim. Within 24 hours, the compound was the victim of a drive-by shooting. Nobody was hurt, but it rattled them to the core. It became clear that Jim bit off more than he was willing to chew. After the drive-by, he had members stationed at a guard post at the edge of their property. His meditation sessions went from dark to unnerving. He ranted about retaliating against the locals who shot at them. He said, quote, if the beast attacks your brother, what are you going to do? When a follower answered, kill him, Jim said, exactly, pow, pow, pow. 
At one point, Jim careened into a diatribe about death and how we never truly die. Death was just a release, energy transforming from one form to the next. While a few of his more zealous followers were excited by the idea of launching a religious war, most were scared. This was the exact reason that many of the young men dodged the Vietnam draft. They didn't avoid one pointless war to die in another. The family started to fracture, and it seemed Jim sensed it. But instead of working to bring everyone back into the fold, Jim gave up. It was like a switch flipped. One morning, the man who started calling himself God a year earlier just stopped caring. He moped around the property, going on long walks by himself. His sex drive plummeted, and his morning meditation sessions became an emotional slog. It's easy to imagine that being God is exhausting. But financial problems were also beginning to pile up. And unlike last time, Jim couldn't get his hands on more capital. He was too tired to go back to bank robbing. Long story short, his heart just wasn't in it. During a morning meditation in 1975, after a long period of silence, Jim sighed and said, I've taught you everything. There's nothing else to teach you. Okay, little birdies, fly out of the nest. As the summer wore on, he grew more despondent. On August 25th, he made his last decision as the Source family leader. One of his wives, Makushla, remembered walking into the morning meditation. She was wearing a black dress that day, which was unusual. Jim told her the outfit was appropriate. She didn't know why, but she screamed. Something about the way he said it rocked her, like he was getting ready to say goodbye. Then, Jim announced that he was going hang gliding at Makapu Cliffs. He had no experience in hang gliding and didn't want instructions. He just wanted to jump and see what happened. Nothing the family said could talk him out of it. He and Mercury dragged a hang glider to the top of the cliff. It was even windier than usual, and Makushla begged him not to go. But he grabbed the glider and ran full speed off the edge of the rock. The family screamed. The moment Jim took flight, the wind stopped, and he soared out over the ocean. He glided in big, soft circles, aiming for the beach below. No one could believe it. They assumed he would nosedive into the sea. Instead, he floated gracefully down toward a small village of native Hawaiians far below. But the thing about hang gliding is that no matter how gently you sail, you have to know how to land. And Jim Baker did not. He smashed into the earth with such brute force that he was lucky he wasn't crushed on impact. He was alive, but the worse for wear. The family scooped him into the car. Jim decided not to go to the hospital, so they took him back to the compound. Isis, the family historian, filmed the next several hours as Jim started to sweat and grow faint. In his last moments, Makushla sat beside him and looked deeply into his eyes. She said, Yahoe? He never answered. In the wake of Jim Baker's death, Makushla stepped up as the spiritual leader of the Source family. But it only lasted another two years. By 1977, the spark was gone, and the remaining members disbanded. Robin and Jim's daughter, Celeste, says that it took years for her mother to get over Jim. Maybe that's the real legacy of the Source family, a group of kind, spiritual people who follow Jim Baker in hopes of bettering themselves but they only truly found themselves after striking out on their own. If we've learned anything this summer, it's that carving out your own journey is always more fulfilling than supporting someone else's. 
There's something romantic about a cross-country road trip. It's a way to leave everything behind, reinvent yourself, and see who you are when you come out the other side. Thanks again for tuning into this special episode of Cults. We've enjoyed traveling with you all this summer, but as the dog days of August near, it's time to pack it up. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday for a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information about the Source family, amongst the many sources we used, we found the documentary The Source Family, directed by Maria Demopoulos and Jody Willey, extremely helpful to our research. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Tyler Walker, edited by Terrell Wells, with fact-checking by Catherine Varner, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible, so we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. Cults.